chapter 2 on Sunday morning, studying the book of Philippians together. And as we're finding our way there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights, we do go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we're currently studying in the Gospel according to John, 6 o'clock this evening. Each of you are invited. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful as always to be able to turn to your word, to just have clear, undiluted uh, truth and wisdom right from your throne. We hear so many things in the world week in and week out. We have so many voices in our own heads and in our own hearts. We have an old nature that we have to deal with and thankful for the new nature that you've brought into our lives. And we're so thankful to be able to turn to the mirror of your word and to receive it into our lives and, and to know that everything that we study here and everything that we not only hear but appropriate into our lives will never leave us ashamed. It's the way to live. It's the way that you have created us. And we pray that you would anoint us by your Holy Spirit and help us to hear your voice through your word into our lives corporately this morning and individually as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember in coming to this point in the book of Philippians that the Apostle Paul has finished his introduction to the letter. And uh, as he follows the model of letters in the ancient world with uh, greetings, identifying himself as the writer of the letter, uh, giving them a, a, a greeting of warmth and affection that he feels for them, and then a brief update on his condition there, in, imprisoned, in, uh, incarcerated in Rome. And then in chapter 1, verse 27, he shifts to the main body of the letter, the reason why he writes this letter. And he wrote there in verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the remainder of this letter now instructs us related to that, how to live a life that is worthy of Christ and the nitty-gritty of uh, this world that we live in and uh, what that will look like in a local church. Last week, Paul encouraged us in, uh, in this regard concerning external conflicts that will come upon a church or upon a Christian uh, from without, persecution from the world. And he told us that we're to stand in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, that we're not to be terrified of our enemies, and that we are to view suffering for Jesus' sake as an honor. He shifts gears here now in chapter 2, and Paul begins to instruct us about conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
and what it looks like in addressing internal conflicts within the church. So he moves from a conflict that comes from without against us in the form of per- persecution to now what, how to address internal conflicts within the local church in order that we can remain united and we can operate in this coordinated way that we need to as a church in this community and as every church in this community is intended to be, uh, like the city of Philippi and the Roman Empire, that we would be an outpost for uh, the kingdom of God here and in order that we might advance the gospel in this community that God has put us in. And this instruction, as we're going to see, is very, very practical. What prompted Paul, uh, his instruction here, was that there was a division, a disunity of some kind within the church there in Philippi. And it had developed to such a degree that it concerned him. And it isn't something that had developed to, it, it appears to be, uh, have been in the very early stages of where this kind of thing begins so often uh, in a church. Because when he addresses it with them, he, had, he kind of woos them. Uh, he he uh, speaks fondly to them and warmly to them and trying to draw them out of uh, the, the, uh, the conflict that is going on uh, in the church. Uh, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, this was a church that was completely divided. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and so forth. I am of Cephas. And so he comes into that church, as you might remember in Paul's letters to them, and he's got both guns blazing, so to speak. I mean, he really exhorts them and puts them in their place. What's going on in this church hasn't even remotely come to that place. And yet, uh, Paul knew enough from his own life and as a leader in the church uh, that oftentimes uh, big fires have a small beginning. And uh, better to nip them at the bud to mix metaphors here this morning uh, as early as, as possible. And so he writes to them with the sobriety of realizing that the greatest danger to the effectiveness of any church is division and contention from within that church. No church will ever be as ultimately and completely destroyed uh, by enemies from without uh, as it can be by division and conflict that occur within it. You notice that Paul tells us, first of all, in verse 1, that we need to remember how good God has been to us. Uh, Been to us as a church, been to us individually, and for the sole reason of being in Christ. And how good God has been to every single one of us as Christians for all of our considerable faults, uh, all of our sins, all of our considerable Uh, immaturity at times. And this is where Paul starts because uh, stopping to consider God's unfailing goodness to us in our relationship with him, his unfailing commitment to his relationship with us, again, for all of our faults and sins and immaturity, it produces a humility uh, in our lives. And humility always lies at the foundation uh, of unity. And Paul lists four things here that are ours in Christ. That is, they're the portion of every single Christian. And uh, realize here that when he writes, is there any, if there is any consolation in Christ, 
that if is not intended to communicate doubt in any uh, way, but it carries the idea of sense. Paul is using a, a rhetorical device here in a sanctified way in order to grab our attention. So when he says, if there is any consolation in Christ, uh, then it, it is intended to immediately grab our attention and make us immediately think, what are you talking about if, Paul, if there's any consolation in Christ, of course there's consolation uh, in Christ. And, and to respond in the same way related to everything uh, that he lists here. And that's exactly the reaction that the Apostle Paul uh, is intending here. The four things that Paul lists, and Paul could have listed dozens and dozens of blessings uh, that are ours uh, as a result of being Christians uh, because of Jesus, but here he focuses on the specific blessings that we experience in our personal relationship with God, since personal relationship is his focus here in this section of Scripture. First, Paul mentions consolation. And so we just stopped this morning in this little place that we're gathered in, and we stop and think, just as Paul intends, of all of the times that God has come alongside each and every one of us to give us encouragement in the course of our Christian life to inspire our courage in order to keep courage from dying in the face of some trial or some betrayal or some difficulty or some uh, 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 suffering or whatever might be going on in, in our life and in the world that would be a cause for discouragement. Now, when he says here, and the idea is to stop and think about all the times he's been a consolation or an encouragement to us in the course of our Christian life. If you're anything like me, that makes my mind break. I, I, it, it becomes almost impossible to take, I mean, I would have to take some significant time to stop and to point out individual uh, incidences and examples of this in my life because all we've ever known is consolation from him it's been a wall of consolation a wave of encouragement uh, from God into each of our lives during the entirety of our uh, Christian lives and and so he begins with this uh, reminder of how an encourager God has been in our lives. Second, he mentions the comfort of love. And so we stop and think, as Paul intends, of all of the times that we've experienced God's love in our lives and the comfort that his love uh, brings to our life and has brought to our lives in the course of our Christian life. And that comfort that we've experienced as we would meditate upon his love for us, as we pray to him, as we uh, worship the Lord in song, as we uh, read his word, and uh, even while driving or whatever the circumstances might be in life, where he overwhelms us with the reminder of his love and never hangs it over us or threatens us with it, but he comforts us with the greatness of of his love. And third, he mentions the fellowship 
uh, of the Spirit. And so to stop and think, as Paul intends, of all that we have experienced as a result of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, all of the power that He's brought to our lives, all of the wisdom that He has brought to our lives, all of the strength and the discernment and the revelation and the ability to obey God's Word and the ability to love other people, all of these things that we owe entirely to Him. The, the life that, and the things that are in our lives that we owe entirely to the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, he mentions affection and mercy. And to stop and think as Paul intends of all of the mercy and all of the tenderness that God has shown us in the course of our Christian life. And then in verse 2, Paul reminds us that with the indescribable privilege of being partakers of these blessings from God, there is also a responsibility attached to those privileges as well. And that is to then extend these things, these same things, to other people in the body of Christ. And to readily and thankfully receive these things from God and then uh, to fail to extend them uh, to other people, that wouldn't represent God at all. In fact, it would reflect very, very poorly on any Christian who refused to do so, and very poorly upon Christianity in a world that is uh, very much watching us. So without question, all of these things that he mentions are meant to bless us, but they're also meant to instruct us in terms of our relationship with others, to inform our relationships with other people. And thus Paul, second, he, uh, in verse 2, with apostolic authority, uh, he calls on us to extend these same things to others. And you notice that Paul calls upon them to do so in order to fulfill his joy. And here again, Paul doesn't use this kind of strong uh, command and exhortation that, uh, that he uh, used to the church at Corinth and, and found necessary in writing to other churches. But here he draws on the relationship that he had with them and that they had with him uh, in order for them to obey and heed what it was that he was saying. He's still writing with apostolic authority. But he wants their obedience to this to come out of their own personal relationship with God and out of their relationship with him. And for them to realize and for us to realize again that a failure to obey what he now commands here and commends here would not only be staggeringly unlike God uh, who calls on us here uh, to give to others what uh, only what he lavishes upon us every day, but that a failure to do so will also affect the joy of those who uh, know them and come into contact with that failure. And it's a very strong realization to realize, and certainly in the heart of any uh, mature Christian, to realize that my obedience in this regard and in all regards related to the Christian life 
it not only has a profound effect upon my own joy uh, and my own uh, uh, within my life, but it has a profound effect upon the joy of other Christians who are uh, ill-affected by uh, my disobedience to God's Word. And, and that's a sobering thought to stop and think about it. If you're backslidden today, or you're walking very far from the Lord, though in church, and your life, disobedience to the Lord, is a heartbreak to your parents, to your godly grandparents, to your husband, to your wife, to your children, to whatever the relationship uh, might be. This is a failure to recognize that the life that I live doesn't just affect me, but it affects everybody else that has a relationship with me. And there's a responsibility uh, to uh, conduct myself in a way as a Christian that does not adversely affect their joy. And so if I'm in that condition today, I ought to recognize that, repent of my backslidden condition, my lukewarmness, and turn back to the Lord for my own good and to honor God, but for the sake of the joy of people that uh, love us as dearly as they do. Now, the proper response to God and, to fellow, uh, and fellow Christians in the light of our, all these blessings that we have from God includes four things, he tells us in verse 2. By being like-minded, literally, uh, set your minds on the same things. In other words, to make God's truth and His Word the supreme uh, focus of our thinking and, and what we can all agree upon as opposed to uh, disagreeing over all of these lesser things of, of my own thinking or my own personal uh, preferences that will inevitably divide uh, in relationships and in a body. He tells us that also that we're to do this by having the same love. In other words, elevating love above all these lesser things as well. Paul, uh, Peter wrote and he says, and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. One of the great things about walking with the Lord for a while and growing in the Lord for a while is the clarity of perspective that we gain uh, over time. And so often when we can look at these disputes that can occur, uh, not on the basis of God's Word or His clear commandments or biblical uh, principles, we're not called to compromise, those things, not even within a church, those things, even if they cause conflict, those things uh, must be ad adhered to. But these other kind of things that can come out of our flesh or we can, uh, people just bother us or these personality differences in these uh, kind of things and we can think that the solution to it, the cause of, uh, of, of this uh, troubledness within my heart is some failure on the part of the other person. And then we walk with the Lord for a while and we realize looking back on it, it wasn't a failure on their part supremely uh, in terms of their action as much as it was a failure on my part to have enough love to allow that to cover the multitude of sin 
of what it is that was going on in that situation. And so often in our lives, not even a multitude of sins, but just one wrongdoing or one uh, minor issue. And then Paul says we can, the response to this would be by being of one accord. In other words, making unity in the body of Christ and in our relationships with one another the same priority that it is uh, to God. Jesus himself on the night before his crucifixion, he prayed to the Father concerning us and he said that they may uh, be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And then Paul uh, describes the importance of being of one mind. And here Paul feels so strongly about this particular issue that he essentially he repeats himself. It's a, a restatement uh, of being like-minded, only he restates it in stronger terms. And, and by nature, some of us immediately notice every difference we have, uh, w- uh, might have with another Christian concerning their opinions or concerning uh, their methodologies, uh, concerning the Christian life and concerning mi- uh, ministry. That's where our, our mind goes immediately to, I would do that differently. Or I don't think that's the right way uh, to do that. No biblical basis for it, but just a personal preference that we elevate to that kind of place. It's the first thing that we see. And Paul writes here and he says, we must never know, uh, stop with just noticing uh, the differences in opinions and methodologies that might be there. But we have to go on to notice what we have in common for all of these differences. And that is the other person's faithfulness to the Word of God and to God's uh, work, however differently uh, we might handle that same situation. And then third and finally, God identifies three kind of mortal enemies of unity and joy uh, in a church. And not only in a church, but in the life of an individual Christian. He warns us in verse 3 against selfish ambition. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. And you might note that word nothing. Uh, it's, It's fairly complete. And, and the reason that Paul doesn't say most or try as hard as you can, or he, he says that nothing be done through selfish ambition, uh, this speaks to the grave danger uh, that selfish ambition is uh, to the unity within a church. And so Paul says there's to be zero tolerance for this in a church or even in an individual Christian because selfish ambition can only lead to conflict and to disunity. There's nothing at all wrong with ambition uh, in and of, uh, of itself. Ambition itself is not condemned at all uh, within the scriptures as, as opposites of it are condemned like laziness or, or indifference. And so God give us uh, more and more Christians and people who, have, who are, uh, possess a godly ambition for the kingdom of God, the edification of, uh, of the body of Christ, the reaching of the world uh, with the gospel. What's condemned here is selfish ambition. The person who, to paraphrase William Barclay, 
has no real interest in advancing the work in a Christian church, but only in advancing themselves. So this is the person who wants their way. They don't care uh, who or what gets hurt in the process of getting their position or getting their way, and they don't care what conflicts or divisions it creates as long as they get what they want, even if it means the destruction of a local church. Or this plays out in an individual relationships as well, even if it means the destruction of the individual uh, relationship. And it's this kind of a person is a poison in the body of Christ because selfishness is always expressed at the expense of others. And soon this kind of a person is going to have heaps of human casualties uh, piled up all around them and they'll either hardly notice them or they'll hardly care. And so there is something far worse than mere selfishness. Selfishness is, is its own problem. But the real problem is when selfishness gets coupled with ambition. You can have a purely selfish person who's utterly without ambition. And that's a problem, to be sure. But it tends to stay somewhat contained. One of the most dangerous people spiritually, in the body of Christ, in, in a local church, any spiritual environment, is the one who is both selfish uh, and ambitious. And of course, this is nothing like Christ, as we'll see uh, next week. But it is very much like another personage in the Bible by the name of uh, Lucifer. I hesitate to use both their names in the same sentence. But here is Lucifer in the Bible who put his, his own ambitions and his own will above everything else and the consequences uh, be damned, literally. Isaiah chapter 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne uh, above the stars of heaven. I will, bit of an eye problem here. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And yet uh, Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, says you shall be brought down to Sheol to the deepest depths uh, of the pit. And so like Satan, the person who is, possesses this uh, selfish ambition, always... Uh, that kind of person ends up being humbled. It all, even as Satan uh, was humbled and will yet be humbled. There's always a humbling coming to, uh, to the one with selfish ambition. But the higher their position in a local church and the greater their influence within that church, the greater, the harder it is to do it and the greater the damage that is usually done. And I think that churches in the United States of America, including our own, are particularly vulnerable in this regard, given the fact that selfish ambition is extolled in our uh, self-dominated culture as a virtue. And it's almost only God who is saying today within our culture that this is trouble in a church or in an individual person's life. And so we have to watch our own hearts for it. 
He says, second, he warns against conceit. Let nothing be done through conceit. And this refers to pride. Uh, pride, of course, is a, 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 an arch enemy. It's incompatible with unity. Arch enemy of uh, joy as well. Pride simply means, as it's understood in the New Testament, it means to see myself above. To see myself above uh, other people. That's the attitude with which uh, a, the proud person carries uh, himself. And if I see myself as superior to others, then I will feel this constant need to be constantly proving it and proving that I am. And since I am not intrinsically superior to anyone, I've taken on an impossible task. I've taken it upon myself to prove on a daily basis what has no basis in reality. Because Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, and he said, if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He rarely deceives anyone else, but he deceives himself. And for that reason, there can be no rest or no joy in pride. To say nothing of the inevitable and the usually public kind of humbling and humiliation that God meets out against uh, all pride. The Bible teaches that pride will always produce conflict with others. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, by pride comes only contention. By pride comes only contention. And because like selfish ambition, pride is always expressed at the expense of others, people tend to notice it very, very quickly. They come to resent it very quickly, and inevitably it results in conflict. And that's no different in the church than it is uh, in the world. The remedy for selfish ambition and conceit are the same, Paul tells us. He tells us that we're to possess a humility, a lowliness of mind that esteems others better than ourselves. This doesn't mean that one person may not excel another person in many different ways. They, that they may not excel another person in terms of physical strength or in terms of intellect, or natural talent, or the ability to hit a baseball, or to teach the Bible, or to lead in worship, and so forth. But despite whatever individual areas we may be better than other uh, people, there's also the recognition that every other person in the world also excels every one of us in many other ways. Now, someone might be a little stumped here at this point and might wonder, how in the world can I esteem others better than myself when I'm better than everybody I know? <laughs> well, how about remembering that they've been created in the image of God, just like you? Or remembering how deeply God loves them, every bit as much as He loves us. Recognizing our dependence upon them spiritually 
as Paul wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 12, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so we need each other. I mean, even in the world, you go to a grocery store to buy uh, groceries and all of that food that you see in that store, it represents the expertise and the hard work of uncountable thousands of people that make that store possible, that makes it possible for every single one of us to be able to shop and to buy food. No man is an island, not in the body of Christ and not in, in uh, the world. It also comes, this humility in our attitude toward others, in realizing that everything I am and everything that I possess as a Christian has been given to me by God. Again, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, for who makes you differ from another? Or what do you have that you did not receive? And the idea is from God. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? Also, there, the importance of giving some serious thought to the possibility that if the truth were made known, the possibility that this other person that we esteem less than ourselves, that their heart and their walk with, the God, with God may bring him even more pleasure than ours does. Or by realizing that unknown to me, the obstacles that they face in being faithful to their Christian life and service may be greater than anyone realizes. But only God knows what those obstacles are. And so their sacrifice is greater, their discipline is greater, their faithfulness is greater. Even in the comparatively little that has been entrusted to them than, the, uh, than we are so often in the much that is entrusted to us. As Jesus taught, to whom much is given from him, much will be required. The knowledge of the responsibility that comes with privilege, I think it'll keep any of us uh, esteeming others better than ourselves. And the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ one day, related to faithfulness to our service to the Lord, uh, may tell a very different story from what we can see with the naked eye. As Paul exhorted the very carnal church, once again, in Corinth in this regard, he said, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. I've always liked the old observation uh, in, in terms of, uh, of, of humility and that humility is made up of two single great uh, ingredients. Number one, honesty, and number two, a good memory. And reminding me, myself of that it always provides me not only with ample cause for humility concerning myself, but it also provides a strong motivation for esteeming others better uh, than myself. 
And then Paul warns against self-absorption in verse 4. He said that each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Now, you do have to notice that also that is there in the passage. That lets us know that Paul isn't prohibiting us from looking out for our own interests. We need to do that as responsible people uh, in our culture and in, in the world uh, and in the body of Christ. But it's never to end there that we're also to look out for the interests of others in order to properly represent uh, Jesus in our lives. That word, the phrase look out, it means to be aware of, to be concerned about. So to make the interests and the welfare of others in the body of Christ uh, our concern as well. Every single person that serves in this church or in any church that exists is someone who has taken this to heart. Their life isn't completely consumed with and all of their time and effort going into uh, their own interests. Uh, they're looking out for the interests of others as they uh, would serve uh, us. And to be just as concerned about the advancement of others in the body of Christ into their highest position in the kingdom of God as I am uh, to my own advancement. And while the Apostle Paul writes of this in the context of maintaining unity in a local church, it applies everywhere in life. Uh, these same uh, virtues are virtues and these same enemies are enemies in any marriage, in any friendship, uh, in any uh, responsibility for the raising uh, of children or in the neighborhood in which God has put us or the workplace or the school, all relationships and all relational environments. This truth uh, is the truth. Now it is important, uh, once again, as I mentioned earlier, that here the Apostle Paul is not calling us to, as Christians to secure peace at any price. And, and, and he's not discounting the fact that uh, biblical, uh, the Bible's truth are not to be compromised in, in any way in order to solve a conflict or one person to yield uh, to another if that's what's being demanded uh, or some biblically founded principle that's important that we do not compromise as a Christian, even if taking that stand uh, results in a conflict within a church. But here he's talking about personal disputes within a church that are founded on selfishness, selfish ambition, pride, and uh, self-absorption, self-importance that refuses to take the health of other Christians and of the church uh, in, into account. And so selfish ambition and conceit and self-absorption, of course, they're all expressions of pride. And these things will not only work mightily against uh, unity, the unity that Paul is contending for here, but it will always rob us of joy as well. And not only us, but it will also rob others of their joy as well. Joy is found in a life of humility. No selfish ambition driving us. No pride that we're constantly trying to 
live up to, no self-absorption that can uh, never ever be satisfied, is doomed to disappoint us anyway. And we notice in the culture all around us that these very things that were once in my very lifetime viewed negatively are now extolled within the culture and widely practiced within the culture. And yes, they will often be rewarded within the culture with uh, financial gain. They'll be rewarded very often with impressive corporate titles and adoring followers on social media craving to see a proud, selfish life lived up close. But they will know no joy. And we can look around at our culture and ask ourselves, where is the joy? What happened to joy in this culture? And it's become as rare as an albino robin because it is always the casualty of these very things. And God has something far better in mind for us And that is a life marked by the priceless joy that comes with humility. And so if I sit here this morning as a Christian and my life is a joyless experience, there can be lots of reasons for it, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to examine my life for these joy killers and to acknowledge them if they are present in my life this selfish ambition, pride and conceit, self-absorption at the, at the cost of, uh, of others in relationship with me. And then if they are there and God shows me that they're there, then to repent of them and then to heed Paul's encouragement to what we are to put in their place within our lives. These things will destroy not only unity, but they will destroy joy in any life. And the Apostle Paul knew knew it, and so he uh, warns us, and he educates us on it here this morning. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. And before I pray, that. In, in terms of this and in terms of many things, I think about there's the old illustration about um, someone who went into a department store. Some of you remember what those were. But going, went into a department store overnight and then switched all of the price tags. Uh, put the, uh, the cheapest price tags on the most expensive items and, and vice versa. And and that is what our culture has done uh, to us. And of course, there's going to be chaos related to that. And and what it's done is it it has extolled and and put the highest price tag on the things that are the most base and the most worthless and dangerous in a human life. And then how lightly it esteems the things that God uh, extols within his word. And so walking in this world and realizing that the world can never educate us on what is really valuable 
and what is not valuable at all. Only God can do that. Only God sees with that kind of clarity. Only God would even dare to write such a thing in a book uh, to uh, all of us that are in this world. Thank you, Father, for the, your instruction here. We thank you for the heart that Paul has for this body and for every church that he planted in every church period in the body of Christ. We thank you for being candid in the way that you are about what it is that is such an enemy to unity and to joy as well. We recognize all of these things in our life to one degree or another or that they dominated our lives in a fashion that uh, earlier in our lives and, and rejoice in the work of your Holy Spirit to move us out of them and not only bring joy into our own, our own lives, but then to bring and restore joy into the deep and close relationships that are a part of any of our lives. We pray that as we leave this place today, that your living word would continue to do its work of encouragement and its work of exhortation where needed in our lives in this important regard. And we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.